kids uh, follow Jenny and leaders, so thank you. So this morning we look at part two of our Christian heritage, and uh, we'll be speaking a little bit about Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 to 18. So today, as I've um, started last week, today is celebrated as Christian Heritage Sunday here in Australia, because remember that on the 3rd of February, which was yesterday, 232 years ago, 1788, was the first Christian service celebrated on Australian land. Last week we spoke about the Reverend Richard Johnson and his endeavours, together with his wife, to be a Christian influence in the new established colony. The many challenges, he did really well, but the many challenges also brought about discouragement. So worn out by his labour and stresses and illness, he resigned in 1800 and returned to England. We recently, we've been doing our series in the pastoral letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul lays down very high standards for elders and pastors, the leaders in the church. We had to do this, he had to do this, because even in the time that he was living in, slowly but surely, stuff started to happen within the church. There were problems, there were dissensions, there were fights, there were heresies. And throughout church history, Christian leaders have been far from perfect. I know that surprises you. Now in today's environment, many of them would be cancelled. That's the word, or erased from history, never to be spoken of again. In many of the universities founded by Christian men and leaders, many of their statues are being pulled down happens in the US and throughout Europe. But imagine, just imagine if we were all treated by God according to what our sins deserve. So thanks to God that he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. As our first reading said, he doesn't remember the sins. Please don't remember the sins of my youth. And he doesn't because of Jesus Christ. And we call this, we call it amazing grace. So as we revisit, I'm just setting the scene here, because as we revisit some of our Christian history, we need to always keep this at the forefront of our minds. So first of all, let's revisit the Anglican Church. In England, the Anglican Church is the state church since 1534, when it broke from the Catholic Church in Rome. whole story there, you can do that reading, that whole episode in your own time. The head of the church is the sitting king or queen of England. And as the British Empire grew and colonised, the church went with it. They sent chaplains and leaders who were protected and sometimes sponsored by the monarchy. 
They were given land and grants to establish churches. For the most part, the government wanted, the government wanted these religious leaders to restrict themselves to moral policing. More so that aspect than calling for repentance and conversion and, and, and godliness. Now, a Christian leader who had a big influence in the Australian colony was the Reverend Samuel Marsden. Samuel Marsden was born in 1765 in Yorkshire in England. And from his youth, he was already well known locally as a lay preacher. He gained the interest of the Eland Society, an evangelical group within the Church of England. And here he met and was influenced by William Wilberforce, who recommended him as an assistant to then-chaplain of New South Wales, the Reverend Richard Johnson, who was already here with his wife. Interestingly, uh, uh, Marsden will eventually disagree with Wilberforce on the crucial issue of the emancipation of slaves, something that Governor Macquarie actually supported. But back to our story. He and his wife arrived in Sydney, in Sydney town, in 1794, about six years after the colony was established. And he arrived as assistant to Richard Johnson, and he was, as his assistant, he was stationed in Parramatta in 1795, and also appointed as a magistrate, a judge. Now, when Johnson and his family returned to England, uh, Marsden was then appointed superintendent of government, of government affairs, and chaplain of New South Wales from the year 1800. Marsden, he wasn't a farmer, but he, unlike Johnson, who was a farmer, but Marsden quickly and deeply committed himself to farming, although he didn't have much experience in it. What he did do is he started amassing big tracts of land. In 1802, he received 201 acres in in grants given to him by the government and then purchased another 239 acres from settlers. Soon he had grazed 480 sheep in order to feed the the colony. He eventually ended up with some 5,000 acres, uh, about 10 kilometres from Parramatta. Wow, what would that be worth today? He applied for another 5,000 acres, but was denied. So he was pretty good at amassing uh, big tracts of land. Now, even though so he served as a, as a rector, as a pastor, as, as a Christian leader, and at the same time as a justice, as a judge. And this was was a common practice in England, back in England. But it soon became a stumbling block in his ministry. Why? Because a lot of the settlers here were convicts who had been sent here by judges. So it was always very difficult to preach on Sundays to convicts to whom he dispensed severe justice as a magistrate in the week. Uh, So this did more harm to his influence 
this did more harm to his influence than his desire to acquire more and more land. He actually became known as the flogging parson. The flogging parson. And feeling frustrated with his uh, lack of progress, I suppose, in, in evangelising the convicts, he tried to reach the Aborigines. But he was also frustrated there as well. He wrote, The natives have no reflection, they have no attachments, and they have no wants. End of quote. So he soon, in his frustration, he soon turned his efforts toward the Pacific Islands, more specifically to the Maoris in New Zealand. He described the Maoris as a very superior people in point of mental capacity, requiring but the introduction of commerce and arts, which having a natural tendency to inculcate industrious and moral habits, opened the way for the introduction of the gospel. End of quote. So even though he is much maligned, poor old Samuel, he's much maligned in Australia, in New Zealand, he's like a hero. And uh, the late Tom Tepania, a former member of that church, used to remind me of that. He couldn't quite understand why Aussies hated him so much. Because in New Zealand, he is loved. He is considered great, with great respect, he, because he brought Christianity and agriculture and also education to the, to the Maori people. Now, prior to... You all know the, the Church of St. Luke's in front of Westfields. Well, a, a big uh, part of Westfields originally was actually owned by St. Luke's, by the Anglican Church, and then St. Luke's sold it and Westfields bought it. Anyway, you can read that history separately. But St. Luke's Church, um, before it was built, Samuel Marsden... At the time, he was rector of St. John's in Parramatta, on Victoria Street, on Victoria Road there. He also came out this way and conducted church services. Not every Sunday, but on occasions he would come in and conduct church services in Liverpool. So the first Anglican minister here in Liverpool was actually Samuel Marsden as well. From 1810, the church services were held in the government building located on Big Street, which also operated as a school. Now, St. Luke's is today the oldest standing Anglican church in Australia. It is not the oldest church. The oldest church still standing is the one in Ebenezer, which was started by the Covenanters, who were also dissenters and all... Anyway, you can read that story separately. Um, so the St. Luke's is the oldest standing Anglican church in Australia. It has been modified somewhat since the early days. But it was founded by Governor Lachlan Macquarie and designed by convict architect Francis Greenway, who was sentenced in England for 14 years for forgery. And uh, with the building substantially completed, the first church service started in October 1819. And that year, the Reverend Robert Cartwright, 
Now the name was appointed as the first rector of St. Luke's Liverpool. It's good to know, and I think it's, it's, it's great to know that Robert Cartwright was also a strong evangelical and a member of the Evangelical Union in England before coming to Australia in 1810. And the suburb is, of course, named after him. Enough about the Anglicans. Now let's get back, let's go to the Baptists, which is a bit closer to home. The Baptist Church in Australia has a colourful history. You'll know what I mean soon. If the Anglican Church is a state church, a state-sponsored church, the Baptists, along with the Congregationalists and the Methodists and the Brethren, are the non-conformists. So the, the Anglicans are the conformists, but the these others, the Baptists, the Congregational, the others, are considered the non-conformists. What does it mean? It means that they do not conform to the, to the governance of the state or of the state or the state church because they believe in separation of church and state and the freedom of conscience. That nobody can force you to believe this. Nobody can force you, the church, to be organised in such a way. Today, Baptists are one of the largest Protestant denominations in the world and also one of the oldest. Our beginnings are humble and are not associated with outstanding leaders like Martin Luther or Wesley, John Wesley or William Booth who started the Salvation Army. In fact, one can argue that the opposite is true. The story of the Baptist Church goes back to 1609 when a group of about 40 English exiles formed the first Baptist Church in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. They moved there because of persecution from the state church, the Anglicans. Their first leader was John Smythe, who initially served as a minister of the Church of England. And during this period, he came to know Thomas Helvis, who was a big landowner in England at the time. And because of persecution from the state church, they decided to move to Holland. While there, listen to this, they had to be baptised. So Smythe baptised himself. then Helwes and formed the first church there. In 1612 they returned to England where they formed the first Baptist church in the east of London. Helwes published a booklet appealing for complete religious freedom. This did not go down well with the powers that be, the king and the Anglicans. He was arrested and died in 1616. In 1633, a second independent Baptist church came into being. They differed from the first in their understanding of the significance of Christ's death. The original group 
we're known as General Baptists, that Christ died for all. The second group were known as particular Baptists. They were Calvinists who believed in limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the elect. And the argument has gone ever since. Now, a new monarchy in England uh, brought in the Toleration Act in 1689. From this point, Baptists and other dissenting groups, nonconformist groups, had more freedom to worship according to their conscience. But it would take a few more decades and even centuries before Baptists and other nonconformists would be able to attend universities like Oxford or Cambridge. Interesting. So three decades after the first Baptist church was established in Holland, the first Baptist church was founded in what is now the U.S., part of a group of pilgrims and others who settled there. Even though they were still British colonies, they had more freedom to practice their faith. And just as the Baptists spread to the British colonies in North America, they also spread to other parts of the British Empire. And, uh, and although settlements had already happened, as we saw in, in Australia in 1788, it will be another four decades before the first Baptist service was held in Sydney. Take 40 years. The founder of the First Baptist Church in Australia was the Reverend John McCaig. He was a fiery Scot. We don't know many like that. From the non-conformist tradition. (laughs) Shut up, Richard. (laughs) From the non-conformist tradition. He would practice his faith straight from the Bible and not mediated through any church hierarchy. Uh, this didn't go over so well in staunchly Presbyterian Scotland, so he soon found himself exiled and serving in the Baptist churches in Ireland. Baptist historian Ken Manley described him as having a smattering of education, a love of controversy, a histrionic eloquence, and a determination to preach Christ as best he could. But even in Ireland, he was a bit of a failure in his early pastoral efforts and was eventually kicked out of there, kicked out of the Baptist church. And uh, several of his colleagues actually thought he was quite mad. Eventually, he washed up in Sydney town in 1830. Let's remember that he was uninvited, unsupported, but ready to launch the colony's first Baptist church. And by this stage, the, the Catholics, the Presbyterians, the Methodist churches were all, they were already established here throughout the young colony. McKay had a particular habit, he liked to drink. He liked to drink a bit, so perhaps his decision, his decision to, to hold the first Baptist service on Australian, on Australian soil, it was held in the long room of the Rose and Crown Hotel 
uh, on the 24th of April 1831. So that wasn't a real surprise to many. A local solicitor who was present described McCabe's, uh, McCabe's preaching this way, he was not as sober as he might have been, he said. So one can imagine why in a town dominated by Anglicans and Catholics an inebriated fiery Scottish preacher didn't go down so well. Add to this the fact that his preaching was often against Catholic and Anglican hierarchy and the practice of infant baptism. When he conducted his, uh, the first adult baptism in, in, in Woolloomooloo in 1832, a large crowd gathered to heckle him and those who were getting baptised. Undeterred, three weeks later, there were three more baptisms. And when the crowd uh, drove him off by pelting rocks at him, McKay conducted future baptisms armed with a tree branch, they say. And after preaching a particularly fiery sermon to, to the heckling crowd about the ills of the conformist traditions, he returned to shore only to find that someone had stolen his shoes. In that same year, McKay made a successful application to Governor Burke for a grant of land to build a church. Now this, uh, this whole idea, because of the separation of church and state, Baptists had never been too keen. Even when offered, they didn't want to have land given by the government because there's always strings attached. Therefore, Baptists have always had to, whatever churches, whatever land they have, they always had to raise it through offerings and loans and repaid by the church. Whereas the Anglicans, the Catholics and others, they usually didn't resist and they got offered quite a bit of land. But McKay... He made application to Governor Burke for a grant of a land to build a church and he was given. The land was free but McKay had to raise the funds for the building. And things get a little bit murky here. He, he claimed that one of his fellow fundraisers had lent him money to buy a tobacconist business. Some have questioned whether he misappropriated the funds intended for the church building. In any case, he lost a lot and ended up in prison, in dentist prison. And while there in prison, he was caught gambling. That is the first Baptist pastor in Australia. <laughs> so by this time, the, the, the fledgling congregation... By this time, the fledgling Baptist congregation had had enough of their wayward pastor. You can understand, right? They petitioned England for a replacement minister to be sent out. And Morling lecturer Dr. Michael Frost comments, uh, he makes a comment on the colourful life of the, the first Baptist pastor in Australia. And I quote, he says, A generally conservative movement... They tend to keep quiet about the fact that they were founded by a boozy firebrand with a gambling problem 
who moonlighted as a tobacconist and who started their first church in a pub, end of quote. (laughs) In response to the petition of the church, the English Baptist sent the Reverend John Saunders, who at the time was considering and preparing for missionary service in India. In character, John Saunders was the opposite of John McCaig. He was thoughtful, he was a teetotaler, it means he didn't drink alcohol, he was moderate, he was well educated. John Saunders was born on the 7th of October 1806 in London. Uh, At 17 he became a, a member of the Baptist Church in Camberwell. At 19 he began to prepare for missionary service. He studied in the University of Edinburgh, was ordained to the Baptist ministry and became responsible for the the planting and formation of three Baptist churches. In 1834, while pastoring in England, he declined an opportunity to enter the English Parliament. So with his wife, with his wife Elizabeth, he sailed as chaplain in a ship carrying female prisoners and arrived in Sydney in December 1834. Baptist services began immediately, first in York Street, then in a room attached to St. James Church of England that that they rented. So Saunders, because of his character, he steadied the, the little Baptist ship and raised the money necessary to build the sanctuary that McCaig had dreamed of. Finally, in 1836, the first Baptist chapel was built in the corner of Bathurst and Kent Streets. And uh, th- this is the land that was originally granted to John McCaig. And so we have the, the picture there of the first Baptist church. The Bathurst Street Chapel was described as a particular Baptist church who provided for open communion and open fellowship. And uh, John Saunders ministered there for 13 years. He visited Melbourne and Tasmania in 1846. He opposed the transportation of slaves and, and, and crusaded tirelessly for the abolition of this. He was also an outspoken critic of the treatment of Aborigines by many British settlers. Alcohol abuse was was a big problem, major problem in the colony. So Saunders led the opposition to the rum traffic, which earned him the nickname of the Apostle of Temperance. Now the building on on Bathurst Street that that you see there, that was eventually sold in 1937, about 100 years later. And with the funds, they built Central Baptist, which stands to this day on on George Street. And of course, John Saunders, there's a a street named after him in uh, Macquarie Macquarie Park, and also there used to be a Camp Saunders here in Macquarie Fields. I don't know if you remember that. Now let's talk a little bit about Spurgeon, Spurgeon's influence. In the second half of the 19th century, the Australian Baptists were deeply 
influenced by C.H. Spurgeon and his significant ministry in London. He was a reformed, he was a particular Baptist who fought tirelessly against the tide of liberalism which was infecting the churches. The churches at that time, England and Europe and the rest of the world were starting to be influenced by Charles Darwin, Freud and Marx. On top of that, of criticism of the Bible. So all of these things were happening and Spurgeon was one of those who didn't want to compromise in any way, shape or form with the, with the rising tide of liberalism. In the first 90 years, he founded the church, of course, at, um, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He held uh, 6,000 people inside. People used to wait outside. They used to queue to come and listen. Uh, he also founded uh, the college, a Bible college. And in the first 90 years of Spurgeon's college, 87 graduates went to South Africa, 78 went to the US, but 106 came to Australia and New Zealand. So this just tells you the, the type of influence that during that time Spurgeon had. Such was his influence that some Baptist churches were even built to resemble, to look like, the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, like uh, Newcastle Tabernacle and the, the Burton Street Tabernacle, for example. His sermons were, were printed and they were distributed and often becoming the Sunday sermon in churches in Australia. A pastor of the time wrote this in typical Australian humour, and I quote, There was a man named Spurgey, who was not very keen on liturgy, but his sermons were fine. I used them as mine, as most of Australia's clergy. (laughs) Yes, Spurgeon was indeed a mighty man of God, but he also suffered from deep depression. He suffered from deep depression. He didn't live very long. And there was a particular habit also that he enjoyed immensely, which was smoking fine cigars. And uh, so when an unknowing guest preacher spoke out against the evil of smoking from the pulpit, Spurgeon closed the evening service by saying this to his church, what for some is sin, others do to the glory of God. End of quote. So, what are we to, to make of all of this? Are, are we ashamed? Are we proud? Embarrassed maybe by these colourful characters? Why didn't God pick some better material to work with? And, and I'm sure that, that as the Jews look back on their own patriarchs and, and they're troubled patriarchal history that could ask the same question sure a sovereign God can do better in picking you know more morally upright people who have got it all together 
If they're going to be the examples that people look up to, right? The Apostle Paul, while in prison, he writes to the church at Philippi and he writes these surprising words. They are surprising because they challenge our predictable reactions as believers. Philippians chapter 1 verses 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Here's the gist. He says, but what does it matter? I repeat, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. That is a a really surprising, surprising response of the Apostle Paul to those who have been trying to undermine his ministry and taking advantage of the fact that he was languishing in jail. So, but despite their questionable motives and morals, he rejoices in the fact that Christ is still being proclaimed. Yes, this sinful behaviour is just the opposite of the way someone who who preaches the gospel should be behaving. We shouldn't be expecting or accepting this type of behaviour from those who stand from the pulpit and preach. And these these hypocrites, they they preach the gospel and then contradict their own words through their actions. (coughs) So here Paul... Instead of condemning them, he actually cuts them some slack. Because ultimately it wasn't about him. However, in his letter to the Galatians, the apostle doesn't hold back when he calls down a curse on false preaching. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. But even... If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So John Piper asked the question, what's the difference rejoicing in Philippians and cursing in Galatians? Can you see the problem here? The difference is that there is no evidence in Philippians that these hypocritical preachers were saying false things when they preached the gospel. Their lives were false, but not the gospel they preached. But the preachers in Galatians were distorting the gospel. In other words, heresy. They were preaching heresy. And Paul is more agitated when the gospel itself is defective than he is when the people who preach the true gospel are defective. As bad as it is, you have to put up with a a preacher with a bad character, 
It is still better than to have to put up with bad preaching filled with heresy. Much worse. This is because as bad as an example and motives of a person can be, for the most part, the damage is limited to his life and death. On the other hand, bad doctrine and heresy can spread like wildfire and cause much more destruction on the church for generations to come, as we can see today. So if you walk out of here this morning and say, well, it's okay then, <laughs> you know, it's alright, the pastor just said oh, I can drink and smoke and do everything else. It's, no, no, no. The, the Apostle sets very high standard, as I've mentioned before in 1 Timothy, in his pastoral letters about the, the character of leaders, elders and deacons, pastors. And, and we never are to lower the standards. But it's much more dangerous if you start listening and following those who are preaching another gospel. And there is a real temptation today that through the internet and, and YouTube and all of these people are, are jumping from one preacher to the other to the other to, to go and pick the ones that, that tickle their ears, who follow and, and, you know, their own heart rather than follow the truth of the scriptures. Apostle Paul said, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. What a colourful history we have, right? But we continue to preach Christ. Can we do better? Yeah, a lot better. But in, in one day we will all have to give account to God who judges everybody, judges the living and the dead. Meanwhile, we have a job to do. But whatever our calling is, the important thing, we, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, as, as Covey said, the main thing, the most important thing, is that Christ, in every way, Christ is preached. May this be a year that we continue to preach Jesus Christ to our generation. Amen.